0: Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity centered design. I'm Brooklyn born in Brooklyn Maine. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Anne Stenroth. Anne has had a distinguished career as a designer and for two years was the chief design officer of the city of Helsinki, which I believe was the first time anyone held that position in the world. She was a leader and a thinker and a lecturer on issues of creative leadership and design. It's my pleasure to have Anne join me on the show. Thank you so much for being on the Deep Dive.
1: Thank you, Phil. Um, It's a pleasure on my side too.
0: Now, when I was preparing for this conversation, you know, you were gracious enough to share, you know, some of your work, some of your ideas, some of the way in which you think about design and leadership and really where the future is going. And as I was reading through your work, I was like, for someone like myself, this was like the best of both possible worlds. Not only was I getting a great perspective on how you think about issues of design But you referenced so many amazing books and writers and thinkers and artists that I just found myself making more and more notes about other things to read, even as I prepared for this conversation. So I've been wrestling with exactly where I want to start, which is the toughest thing. The first question is so critical. And what I want to get to at the very beginning is this idea about architecture, which comes up a lot in your writing. And I thought about this idea of architecture as more than physical space. And then on the other side of that, design as being more than physical objects. So I I really want to get your idea on those concepts around architecture and design being more than physical.
1: Well, you put it quite beautifully because it has been a lifetime journey and I'm a lifetime learner. But quite early, I noticed when I started as an architectural student. My father, he is an architect, 92 years old now, <laughs> and my mother, she is a furniture designer, one of the biggest names during the golden era in 1950s, 60s, and 70s in Finland. So I was born and bred under the drawing table, so to speak. So it was quite obvious for me that I should start to study architecture, but I have always been on both sides, thanks to my mom too. So I was very much interested in design. But after the student years, I thought that maybe, you know, the practicing as an architect, that's not me. I couldn't find myself there. I spent all the summer times in my father's office as a junior position, The last table next to the door, (laughs) so to speak. But it was interesting, but somehow it wasn't enough for me. And when I got an opportunity to get a grant and uh, study architecture at the University of California, Berkeley, after I graduated from Finland, I did a second master's there in architecture again. But why at Berkeley at that time? It was thanks to Chris Alexander, who was teaching pattern language there. So he was more like a theorist. And that's why I wanted to continue there, because at that time in Finland, there wasn't anybody teaching the theory of architecture. So I got the idea that architecture could be writing, reading also, research. So I wanted to do my PhD in architecture. I did my doctoral dissertation and it started like, you know, a normal journey that, okay, I want to look for the theory of space because I'm an architect. (laughs) See what I mean? So I studied a lot and I bought plenty of books, contemporary books at that time from U.S. because they weren't available in Finland in the beginning of the 80s. So it took me to another track that, you know, after several years when I finally got my doctorate, I noticed that I have traveled from space to place because I started it as a journey looking around the structure of a space, the sequences of space, very much uh, aligned with Chris Alexander, for example, and uh, some other researchers too. But in the end of the dissertation, I started to talk about the meaning of the space, literally the place. And I realized that the most beautiful part of research is actually because it is an exploration. You take uncharted waters and you think that there is something there. You have a vague idea, but in the end, you find something that you never, ever realized when you left onto that journey. So I'm still on that journey, so to speak, <laughs> trying to understand why, the meaning, the purpose of everything. But it was very existential for me as a young architect to realize that architecture could be, you know, also philosophical thing. Like what I learned from Louis Kahn's texts and also from his buildings.
0: And I mean, so, that's a great, I want to leap on to that point about place. And moving from space to place. I, I think that's a, a very eloquent way to frame that because you know, as a strategist myself and someone who is deeply focused on culture and culture spaces, I started thinking about when you were writing about scenario planning and scenario planning as a discipline and what I want to do is tie in that idea of scenario planning to the notion that you just shared with us of place and thinking about uncovering things we might not have otherwise thought about. Like, how do you reconcile or put those ideas together, that practice of scenario planning with this existential thinking about place?
1: Well, that's an interesting notion. now when to come to think it from that perspective. Maybe, you know, I'm doing uh, through the scenario process, through the scenarios and futures thinking, probably I'm sort of creating tiny places into the future to leave the anchor, see what I mean, so that you know how to navigate. Because otherwise, it's very blurred. And it's like a unknown territory in the same way. But if you get a small glimpse into that future via scenarios. And if you add the human part there, the personas into that context, you sort of create islands there into the future to inhabit and share the idea Because what happened to me when I started at Kone Corporation as the first design director ever in the history of the company, there was nothing there. I mean, they told me that, well, there's you and a part-time person in Italy and I was placed in Finland. And good luck, you should build the team and the processes, the competencies and do at the same time the projects. So it was a kind of very unknown territory for me at that time. So I think that how you navigate is Why are these kind of places that you can stick into and then you can explain the content of the place to others so that you start to create a small community? Because when I was talking about the future, they didn't even understand what I was talking about. It took several years to educate them, to see forward long enough. Because usually when in tech business, at least in this kind of elevator escalator business, the R&D projects, they usually take like three to five years to deliver. And in the year one and a half, you have to fix frozen the design. And then comes, you know, the technologies and everything else. So you have to foresee that when the product is launched, people say, wow, that's novel, that's new. And not all, we have all seen that. (laughs) So in that respect, I think that what I have tried to do is to understand something in the future. But I want to go back a little bit in this respect, because I was 16 when my mother took me first time to the Milan Design Week. At that time, it was called Milan Furniture Fair, actually, International Furniture Fair. And it was a long, long time ago. But... Since those days, I realized that if I'm walking around and realizing things, reading things out of that mess of piece of furniture or whatever you want to name it. So maybe I can navigate somehow and understand better what's going on in the future. A few years later, I read about Fiorucci. At that time, it was a big brand in Italy. And there was an article in magazine called Abitare, and they were talking about interviewing the president of Fiorucci. And he said that, yes, we have these people who are our eyes and ears in each city around the world so that we know what's coming next. And I thought, oh, my goodness. This would be my passion job (laughs) to become that kind of person, not for Pierucci, but for something. So see what I mean, that your identity is born in year one and two, and somehow you follow that red string throughout your entire professional life. So me trying to understand the world around me via the lens of design or architecture that's why I said that this is still my journey. And this now, I have taken it into a next level in my profession when I'm talking about scenarios. And lately, we have been doing a study about the entire architecture and the role of architect in the future. We have created with two younger colleagues, we have created several scenarios and several personas representing the scene in the future. The same and, I did with the chief design officers, what kind of design leaders we are going to see in the future, what kind of role they will carry. And,
0: you know, I as you're kind of going through this idea of personas and thinking about that future, you know, the future, even though often popularly discussed in the singular, is actually a, a function of plural and pluralities. There isn't just one future, there's likely several viable futures, depending on decisions that we already made in the past, as well as decisions that we're making right now in our present. And it made me think about these, the four P's that you've highlighted in some of your work and that we've seen in other spaces as well. This idea of what's probable, what's possible, what's plausible and then what's preferable. And even though that is a way of thinking and starting to do some framing, I wanna spend a moment really on the preferable. And why I wanna do that is because values are such a important part of how I think culture works. I think it's center to any conversation about culture. And what we prefer, what's preferable, is oftentimes a reflection of our values, you know, is a function of the culture in which we're working in and swimming in and thinking about. So I want to give you an opportunity to really, you know, pull that apart a little bit, like pull apart all the peas if you want, but spending maybe some special time on the the preferable piece of that as it pertains to how we think about the future.
1: Well, that's interesting because we all know what is probable you know that's the easy piece so if we look around and we read all the stuff and google you know the trends 2020 or now we should google trends 2021 of course <laughs> and put the kind of any kind of substantive in the front of that you get plenty of answers where we are heading for well then you have the idea of possible futures and that is a little bit wider perspective right because uh, there could be a kind of mixture of probable and possible. And then uh, that the same goes maybe with plausible. But the preferable is something different. That is something that, like you said, that there is your values already in there. And also there is this leadership element. See what I mean? We want to have this kind of future or we prefer to have this kind of leadership. It could be a self-leadership, you know, I want, or it could be a kind of leadership within a group that we want, whatever you consider. But then I was shortly reflecting to an occasion because a year ago, before this uh, pandemic's time, I had an opportunity to teach futures thinking. One session only, three-hour session, for very young people between 11 and 14 years. It was a kind of drawing school, you know, after school time. And I was their ambassador. So they were creative children. All children are creative, but these definitely were very creative thanks to their drawing skills. So I explained them a little bit what is the idea of persona. We did a small study so that they created actually a persona for the future and made the outline for that persona, you know, and what is his favorite food and what he wants to do and da-da-da. And then after that, as a group work, I asked them, I explained briefly what we will see in the future, but very briefly, in a very simple way, because this was first time I did this for that age group. <laughs> so I didn't really know how to approach. <laughs> it was a tough, tough thing. So I asked them as a, small teams to create the front page for their local newspaper 10 years from now on. What are the headlines? Then a short description and an image There, following that. Two headlines. And of course, one considered that, okay, they will uh, explain the preferences of the future, the preferable future. We as an adults, we considered that that will happen, right? But what was there, what was interesting, because it was a mix of uh, something that they prefer, that they want to desire with a mix of fears. Hmm. So they were combining utopian with dystopian news. In most of the cases, it wasn't, you know, the beautiful future with all good. No, but there were embedded elements that we can see today. Even one, I remember one boy who wanted to do it alone, you know, a loner, obviously, he was talking about a new pandemic. Before the time of Corona, Hmm. he definitely didn't know anything what Bill will face, but he was thinking that to happen in the future. So there were both sides of the coin, so to speak. So when we talk about the preferable future, there is always the fear of the, you know, that unpreferable present at the same time. Somehow, I, I think that it's important to understand that when you are talking about the future, the human nature is like that, that we want to something, but at the same time, we are afraid of something. So when you build the scenarios, probably you should have both one.
0: And I wonder how, because I, I had a, another conversation, this was maybe by the time folks listened to this In the new year, it will be January more than likely when listeners are hearing our conversation. So we will be past the holidays. We will be past New Year's as a date. And I had a conversation with the professor out of Stanford, Fred Turner, and that was released here in the United States right before election day. So it was like that Monday before we voted. And it was interesting because Fred as as a someone who is a media theorist and a thinker around technology and and media, we actually spent a, a fair bit of our conversation talking about more culture and shared trauma, for lack of a better word, and how Things are, we hold a lot of what is in our present. We take that into our future. And Arundhati Roy, who is, again, people who listen to the show know I always reference her. She's like my intellectual superhero. At the beginning of the pandemic, she talked about this as being an opportunity in the sense that the pandemic is like a portal. We have the opportunity to pull new ideas through this portal Or will we make a choice to pull the old, dead, non-working ideas, that, as she so eloquently put it, through this portal with us? So when you shared that story about the class and the people, the students sharing their visions of the future, but yet still carrying some of those fears that might exist through our present lens, I'm wondering how, how you think about that beyond those students and into the work that all of us do, even organizationally, personally, it seems like there's just, you know, there's all these issues, whether we call it fear, whether we call it trauma, maybe for organization, they're thinking about their their longevity, will they survive? There's so many different things floating around. And I'm wondering how we capture all of that as we think about what's viable and what's possible in our future. Long setup. But you hit on so many different things. I wanted to get it. I wanted to get it all out. I'm sorry for the long editorial question.
1: (laughs) No problem. No. I think that one way to do this, uh, that you can put your fears aside and somehow see the future clearly is prepare your mind for the future. And that's why that school, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, school drawing skills, when they asked me to do a workshop for the students, they didn't ask to do this future workshop, no. But I thought I want to do it because I want to give the confidence for those young people that they have a say for the future, that they can shape it, that they can create it, that if they imagine it, if they think about it, they can start to understand it and they can even fix it. So it gives you a confidence that you prepare your mind. But like you said, that it's not about the future, but it's about, it's a plural, it's futures. Because I had an opportunity to, years ago, to sit next to a a very old gentleman, actually on a dinner table, And it happened to be that he uh, was—he had been the head of the strategy unit at Shell Company, and he was. Responsible for scenario work. And I, you know, I <laughs> I had just finished my first scenarios. Oh my bright eyes. I was looking forward, what kind of advice he would give me. <laughs> and then I asked that, you know, with a tiny voice that uh, listen, is it true that those scenarios that they really helped uh, Shell? Because Shell is famous. They started the scenarios in the 60s, you know, the first company to really do it in a strategic way. So, And he said that, listen, yes, but you should always remember to create several scenarios because one time they almost collapsed the whole company in the 70s because they stick to one scenario and the opposite happened. That was the oil crisis, you remember. So In that respect, it's very important that you prepare your mind for different futures, different scenarios, because then, you know, it's going to be anyway, a mixture of those things in the future. So you have uh, maybe some tools to face the challenges. And this is why I mention so many times usually when I'm talking about exploration. And uh, those people who went to unknown places. And I'm fascinated about those stories, how they got this stamina and this fearless aspect that they just took a ship and off they went. I mean, I have been sailing and sailing is difficult (laughs) like hell (laughs) in my mind, (laughs) even to do the, the sailing part. But Thinking in terms that you don't know where you are navigating, you don't have a map. And in ancient times, the kings, you know, they used to have a cartographer in their close circles just because of that, because those who knew the roads, they had the power. So the cartographs usually, they did the maps in the, that format that the kingdom was in the center of the map. You know, in Netherlands, it was the ne- Netherlands in the center of the map. And in China for emperor, it was China in the middle of the, the map. But today, because we all have the map in our cell phone, in our pocket, the power is distributed. It's completely different because all of us, we can all navigate towards the future or anything because there is so much knowledge available, unlike in ancient times. So this navigation on uncharted water, it's a power. And all the companies, they know it or they should know it. But yet at the same time, they are very afraid of the future And they don't really want to do the real actions towards the future. What I did at the City of Helsinki, we created four scenarios. We did the full scenario process parallel to the strategy planning process, the very traditional format. And we co-created a vision for Helsinki based on those scenarios together with 250 top city leaders all together, and 10 plus workshops. And they say that this is the first time they had the value discussion, value discussion about the future of the city of Helsinki. It was an unbelievable moment for myself to realize what kind of powerful tool the scenarios and the personas could be, because they are not an end themselves. They are just, you know, means to get a shared vision.
0: And I want to really leap onto that, to your time working as the chief design officer of Helsinki, because, you know, I'm a Brooklyn kid. I grew up in New York all my life. I'm a big believer in the hope and promise of cities. And clearly, New York City and Helsinki are different. But what I always come back to as I travel and as I do my work is, again, that notion of the promise of a city. And- Now that we're faced with the pandemic and cities have other challenges and have had challenges in the past, what I want to do is, you know, give you an opportunity to talk more about Helsinki specifically or maybe cities in general as to how you see a possible future, futures for cities, given any number of challenges that we have.
1: Oh my goodness, this is a huge question.
0: <laughs> I know, I dropped a big one.
1: Yeah, you, cities, you, really, you hit the nerve. Cities
0: are my, are my passion, you know, so yeah. I've been reading so much about them and there's so many different, like the 15-Minute City, you cited in your work and I've read quite a bit about the scholarship behind that and it's just, there's just so much there, right? But you were in the driver's seat, right? oh
1: like, uh, well, well, not in a driver's seat, not, definitely not. I think that in my mind, it's quite complicated, the situation to be a chief design officer of a city, because frankly, city is a huge organization and there are so many functions. And if you want to make change there, You have to do it step by step. So it's a lifetime journey, another lifetime journey. And depends also on the, how should I see, the vision of the mayor. Because if you don't get the support from the top, definitely it's no go, you know, to create that change and that change of mindset and change of culture. And that takes a long time. But that's another story because I think that Only after I left the city, because it was a project, frankly, two year project that I finished there. So I realized that it was more like a systems change see what I mean. It wasn't a design, strategic design task, the task at all, but it was about the connections and how you reshape the connections and how you sort of coordinate the change among the different ecosystems, namely functions. So it was highly too complex for a one short project and for one person, because I didn't have a team. So it was as I said, mission impossible, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And probably that's why I'm so interested in nowadays the system thinking and the systems chains and how we can sort of create a system of systems. Because architecture is really a system of systems, like a city. City is a kind of it's not even a network of ecosystems, but it's really a very, very complex system itself. But I want to go to the very beginning when you introduced yourself saying that I'm Bra- Brooklyn-made. I can't pronounce it properly. Brooklyn-made. Brooklyn <laughs> and Yeah, no. But uh, my answer is that I'm Tapiola-made. Tapiola was the first garden city in Finland. They started to build it in the 1950s. And I don't want to tell my age because I'm in that age, obviously so, but I let me just uh, briefly explain that we moved with my parents and my brother and the second came after that to Tapiola in the 60s, in mid-60s. And it was under construction, and the best architects of the time were creating the plan. The best architects were designing the building blocks. And it was all about the very fine balance between woods and buildings. So there were woods around the building blocks, and then came the next building block. and and natural nature around it again. And then gradually, you know, when I was in my teens, they got the city center, not the really center, but (laughs) there was a kind of idea of a center with a a communal swimming pool and a church and all that. But I grew up together with that garden city. And only afterwards, I realized that the city became part of my identity, this garden city. And because it was a brand new area, so the schools were full of young teachers that were fresh from the university with the latest understanding what is the future. And that's why I think I got this innovative mindset, this forward looking mindset. As part of my identity, thanks to this environment that was so much looking forward and building the next Finland or something, you know. There were also tours for architects uh, from all over the world that they came to see the brand new Tapiola Garden City. They visited my parents' home. They were touring, you know, 86 square meters in in two floors, and we have to clean up the house every month for the tours.
0: That's amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so only, you know... Some forty over forty years later, I started to understand where I got this spirit. Like you said, maybe you can explain what is this Brooklyn made in your identity, because that's the place. That's the thing of the place. It leaves some kind of mark into your personality, in good and bad, of course, but that's why the physical environment, the city. And the places, they are so, so important. And I always have loved the best ever definition for a city that I have read. And it's by Louis Kahn when he said that this is now quoting freely that the city is a place where a small boy walking through it can see something that he wants to do during his whole life. Yeah. So it's an inspirational experience. It gives you a kind of, uh, how should I say, this idea of this preferable future like we were talking about. You see, there's something that is optimistic and future-orientated. But if you take now, let's say, the rural areas in Finland that the small cities where there are only elderly people living there, you know, and there's almost nothing there anymore because the big companies, they have left, the young people, they have left, no families have moved in. So where is the optimism? Is there anything you can see that you, as a young person, that you want to do during your whole life? So Concern is now that how we can keep that essential part, this inspirational part in the heart of cities and places. And I think that we are moving into a new kind of era because of these pandemics and because of the other trends too, that this placemaking and community building, they are becoming the thing in our environment, in our built environment, if we want to survive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you highlighted, you know, as I was listening to you tell your story, and again, I I think it's one of the beautiful things in the sense that, you know, Brooklyn and Finland are very far apart. But as you were describing, you know, the town growing and being built and being discovered, and you mentioned myself being from Brooklyn and, and, I, and I lean on that pretty heavily. There's a spirit or was a spirit of community in Brooklyn. When I was growing up, there was pride, unique pride in being from Brooklyn because it was seen as so outside the quote unquote, "norm of Manhattan, you know, sort of our, you know, I don't I won't say older brother, so to speak, but there's that relationship that, you know, the city, which is what we just call Manhattan that's where you went to do something, right? And Brooklyn was just where you grew up and you lived, but it was always kind of looked down upon, even though now Brooklyn, quote unquote, is kind of popular, but it's popular with the worst kind of people. So it's changed Brooklyn tremendously. But when you were sharing that story, I heard that same community. I heard that same communal spirit. And it's such an important part of what I think about urban what urban slash city life should be you know so i want to give you an opportunity you mentioned this in one of your one of the essays that you shared with me and i might pronounce it incorrectly so if i do correct me there's this finish the finish concept of um talkut. did i say that right Tarkut. there you go that sounds much better than what i just said
1: <laughs> talkut. Talkut. okay Talkut.
0: yeah and it sounded, this idea of everyone coming together to build something. And it really resonated with me because my family is from the Caribbean. My mom's from Barbados. My dad's from Guyana. And when I was growing up, we had this notion, this idea called a susu, where people would put money together. It was not interest bearing, but everybody would contribute the same amount of money every week. And then one week, one person gets the money. And it just keeps going around and around and around and around. And it was a way for an immigrant community to support one another when maybe traditional banking and getting a loan wasn't really possible. And the concept that you describe in your essay sounded so much like the susu to me, even though that's a financial thing. But it was this notion of people coming together. And I'm curious, how do we continue to build on these notions of community? How do we make them a living part of our viable slash preferable futures when so much from an institutional and corporate perspective is working in opposition to that (laughs) (laughs) or seemingly in opposition to those ideas?
1: Actually... um... Just a week two ago, I was in, invited to a creative team in London. Actually, putting together kind of a concept or idea for a master plan because there is a competition in London for a vacant area that is quite nice and quite big, and somebody. From there, they approached me and asked that could I join because I had this understanding of the city and they were mostly designers, the other ones of that team. And I started to think about that, how we can approach this, um, I love the uh, the word or concept, communal spirit. I'm going to use it, thanks to you. (laughs) So how we can enhance it, how we can build it, how we can keep it, And somehow I started to think again from the systemic perspective so that I approach it from the idea that we have a kind of micro level, meso level and macro level. So mostly, you know, the planners, city officials and even architects, they play with the macro level so that they create the fancy plans and they thought that, okay, that and that many people have that and that many square meters. And, you know, that's it. And some regulation on the top of that or something like that. Well, this is a nasty picture, but just to get the idea that they are not looking it from the grassroots level. But then we have the kind of micro level, people living in that area or around that area, entrepreneurs there, you know, family people, elderly people, young people, old people, middle-aged people, (laughs) disabled people, you name it, that there is this very strong social ecosystem already existing there like you beautifully described about propylene. So there is something existing there. And in between this macro macro and micro level, we have sort of, I got the idea that we can have this meso level, that this level of scenarios. So that if we start to discuss with people what is their preferences, their values about the place, their understanding of their place, the interaction with the actual place, the interest and concerns, the interests and concerns of the local people. So if we translate that knowledge into kind of scenarios that let's say we have the plausible, preferable, <laughs> possible, etc., scenarios, we have even two types of dystopias, you can say, and then we start to use that as a method and personas on the top of that to discuss with the people and i got the fantastic idea when i discussed this together with my colleague another trend researcher in london that we could open an application for the local people that they can fill in uh, their own persona so that you know the the age the first name you know the hobby the work, the family relationships, and what are you afraid of, and what is the best place for you, etc. And out of that, we can use it as a tool to get the understanding that we can have the scenarios on the right track. And only after that, We start to do the planning and the city officials and all, you know, the regional development projects and, you know, that kind of regulatory aspects, et cetera, et cetera. But if we don't have this middle level, the meso level about scenarios, we don't have tools to discuss with the city people. The real people. Because what happened when we did these scenarios for the city of Helsinki, so they asked me that, listen, Ana, you should uh, explain them to the citizens. And we have this format that we have an open evening, you know, after six o'clock, when people uh, can come. And then uh, we have it at the city hall, and you are explaining the scenarios, and there is a QA and a Okay, I thought that, well, this is going to be fun. But it ended up in a catastrophic level from my perspective, because when I open up the four scenarios, the four personas and the whole thing, there were the only elderly people sitting in the first three rows. And one by one, they ask, what will happen to our nearest and dearest trees? Hmm. What will happen to my trees? And I didn't even touch their trees. I didn't even talk about parts. Maybe it was my misunderstanding. But see that the macro level and micro level, they didn't meet in any ways. Mm. So I thought that we need more tools somehow. We have to go to the grassroots level and start it from there coming the up to the macro level. So otherwise the discussion is impossible. I mean that the ends don't meet because people they they are worried about the nearest and dearest things in their surroundings. Absolutely. And you know, as an expert, I'm worried about the global scale. So it's it's completely different domains.
0: Yeah, I think that finding that connection in that within the systems, the systems are people, but it's What people, how are we engaging with them? How are we talking to them? How are we including them? Are we listening rather than dictating? And that story captures so much of what I think is missing when we're having these culture value conversations as to what people really care about. You know, there was a concept that you shared in your writing that I really, I thought that I would spend a lot of time on because I found it to be so so needed, which was this idea of good enough and and good enough leadership, which is very people focused when we think about culture and values. I think many of us, particularly in the last 30 to 40 years, I'll say, have been very, in a Western concept, very driven to this individual idea of success, which is driven by the things that we can accomplish. It's a very resume slash CV type of happiness. You know, the more accolades I can check off, the more titles I can amass, I'll lead to happiness. And when I read your essay and the short book that you focused on this idea of what is good enough, it starts with a very philosophical question, I think, about our lives. But then you, I think you very astutely Mm -hmm. expand that to Place, you know, where we kind of landed in the beginning. You know, the places in the philosophical sense that we're designing are they good enough to meet our needs as human beings, physical, psychological, our well being? And I want to give you an opportunity to talk about basically the metamorphosis of that concept of being good enough. You know, I think it's in many ways quite revolutionary relative to how we think about our development as people.
1: Well, it's a very, very wide question again. And I think we have been sort of trying to talk about it during the, the last 53 minutes or so. Yeah, we were
0: <laughs> because, dancing around it, you know, but... Yeah,
1: it's, it's embedded into... Many of of the things that I have been trying to explain from my perspective, and also what you are talking about, your experience, about your neighborhood and the communal spirit, that lovely concept. So it happened so that just today I was listening to designer, interior designer, Marcel Wonders in a webinar. And he was saying that it's not so important, these technical issues and these, you know, functional issues that we are so focused nowadays and efficiency and all that. But he said that it's much more important that you can put some love into that project. And he explained what his idea of love in a project is, actually. He was referring to Jacques Cousteau, this explorer (laughs) of seas, when he has uh, stated that if you love it, you care for it. It's a very, very simple idea that if you love something, there is a reflection that you care for that. And vice versa, that if you care about something then you usually love it somehow. So if we can create that kind of idea into any place that we are designing or where we are living, then you get that care also there, if you get the love and vice versa. And I think that's the idea of good enough. It's good enough for me. It's good enough for you. And somehow I have tried to understand that um, it's not that much how far it is, how fast it is, or how high it is. But is there anything, this kind of human ingredients that somehow touch your heart in the end as a human being? And I have recently read a lot about how there's going to be a huge change in the creative work, in the role of creative professionals, and how the machines are going to take over and they will deliver you know, with full speed, all the basic elements of design and creation. Fine, yes. But where is this ingredient of love? Because it's not just a kind of spice that you add on the top of it, like a salt or sugar or whatever. No, but it's an essential part of our human existence. So I think that somehow, you know, good enough, if you think about good enough people, they are very modest usually. They don't make noise out of them, but when you discuss with them what kind of treasure box of wisdom there actually is, you know. I think this good enough, it's a kind of hidden treasure that, you know, there is a bigger world in that, not just the title. It's like a difference between your role and your personality, Well, I'm an architect, doctor in technology, but as a person, I'm a human thing who is interested in exploration and Antarctica and, you know, the communal spirit and, and different issues. Completely different story. But we are bounded into our roles too much. And when I teach the young leaders to come, I usually give them assignment that they have to draw themselves. And, you know, put the headline, my role, but then also my personality, so that they see that your personality is your engine. That is your superpower. Your role could be anything. My title could be, you know, whatever. But my superpower is there that I understand probably something about the place making, the communal spirit.
0: you know that captures perfectly i think where we need to center ourselves and think about and again it's a individual journey but it's also a, a journey that we're all taking together and um if we care we love and i use that all the time it's it's funny i'm doing it i would have done a talk by the time people listen to this that's one of these future what's going to happen in 2021 and and actually my primary like addition to this conversation which is going to be held next week is that we're in a crisis of care that the most important thing as we move forward to 2021 and beyond is that we find ways to build care into all of our all of our systems and all of the way in which we operate. It's sorely missing in, in a lot of ways so everything you said really resonated with me. We have two segments that we end the show with one is off the dome and the other is the drop. Before we get to that, I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to talk about the UDI Library, which we mentioned briefly in in our kind of our pre-talk, but I used the library as an example in a few lectures I was doing last year as just really a space that touched me in a lot of ways, even though I've never physically seen it or been there. The idea and the notion behind building a library that would truly live and exist for the community that it served beyond how we normally, quote unquote, normally think about a library. And, you know, you're in the city. (laughs) So I would be remiss if I didn't use this opportunity to kind of get a firsthand perspective on, you know, am I, maybe it's me from far away glorifying the idea, but it just seemed like a beautiful concept. So elegantly done. And I wanted to get your thoughts on You know, the principles, the meaning, the impact, whatever you can share with me and our listeners, and then we'll get to the final two segments of the show.
1: Well, ODI is actually, it's the Helsinki City Central Library, and it was uh, launched uh, in the Finnish 100 years of independence time, so a few years ago. But mostly what is interesting there, it's a beautiful piece of architecture, wooden curving floating ceiling and open spaces but the thing is that it's first and foremost a learning space you know in the first floor there is public spaces there are several auditoriums for uh, different type of events there are cafeterias of course etc cetera, etc cetera. but in the middle floor in the second floor what they have there there are kind of maker space so that you can lend a sewing machine and do things there, or 3D printing. So it's a making level. And on the top of that, everything, there is so-called book sky, so that there are the rows of books or piles of books to browse and, and go through. But I think that This reminds me of the old wonderful book from 1980s about the third place that is written actually in US and the importance of the grand third place, namely that the first place is your home and second is at work. And then you need places in between that are sort of democratic, that uh, there is an easy access. They are open for everyone. So basically, they follow the idea that they are equal, they are diverse, and they are inclusive. That are very important characteristics of a good place, by the way. So in that respect, the library is exactly that kind of place. Because with no money, you can enter into it and enjoy all three different floors and get knowledge also, learn new things. In the same way, there is a new uh, Think Corner provided and uh, supported by the Helsinki University where you can go to work as teams or alone. There's a cafeteria and they have a fantastic program all week, all days about the top scientists talking about the latest research. So both these places, they show the way forward towards future, because it's endless learning of new things, constant learning. And also, if we consider our climate, that there is four months in the middle of darkness and coldness during the winter time, so they are quite convenient <laughs> at this time of the year rather than going to park. See what I mean? Absolutely. But they are, but they are public parks, indoor parks you
0: know. It's one of the things I look forward to the most is getting back on planes and being able to see all these things in person. So it's high on, on my list to be able to see and experience them when we can finally get back to moving in a way that is more quote unquote normal. So I want to jump into the last two segments of the show. The first being off the dome where I just ask a couple of more than a couple, I think I have four quick questions. The first thing that pops to mind is the correct answer. So no real pressure to come up with something really deep. These are just for fun. And the first one is we kind of talked about places and space and where we come from. And we all know that there are you know, ideas and stereotypes that everybody has about what someone is when they hear where they're from. So I'm curious, what is the most obviously finished thing that you enjoy?
1: Sunshine, I miss it. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the year, I miss it. (laughs) It's not a finished thing, but surely, you know.
0: (laughs) Sunshine, that's a good one. And as someone who is obviously engaged in architecture and you think about architecture in incredibly deep ways, what is your ideal type of building?
1: Kind of co living apartment something, sharing something, but having my privacy at the same time. If you had the
0: ability to learn one thing instantly, what would that one thing be?
1: To become an explorer, a real one, fearless.
0: And on that note, we often hear it's not the destination, it's the journey. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes I just kind of really want to get to the destination. So I'm curious, what is your preference? Are you a get to the destination or enjoy the journey?
1: Lighthouse, my northern star. Awesome. You can take it part of the journey (laughs) as part of the journey. Okay. But you have to have your lighthouse.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Okay. So I want to get us to the drop. And the drop is just a you know, a suggestion. I call them these intellectual morsels. It doesn't mean it has to be serious. Something that our listeners can take away from the show and maybe interact with on their own. So I have a drop. I asked, you know, my esteemed guest to leave a drop as well. So do you want me to go first or do you want to go first?
1: Why don't you go first?
0: Okay. My drop is a documentary that I just watched this past weekend it's on Netflix, so I'm sure it's available everywhere in the world. And it's about Joan Didion, and it's called The Center Will Not Hold. And Joan Didion is a writer, public intellectual. I'm not overly familiar with her, or I wasn't overly familiar with her work in terms of having read it and spent a lot of time with it, but I was familiar with her as a person, which is what motivated me to watch a documentary. And it did a, a masterful job, I think, of walking through this person's life. And it inspired me to check out more of her work and, and engage with her work in a deeper way than I had prior to. And I think anyone who is looking for sort of a generational story about family and love and loss and work and being creative would will pull something from it. I'm sure everyone will get something different And so my drop is Joan Didion's documentary on Netflix, which again is called The Center Will Not Hold.
1: Wow. What can I say after this? (laughs) You drop a bomb, a cultural (laughs) bomb in my mind. (laughs) So I was really thinking about that because you sort of gave a hint to me that in the end you are asking about my recommendations. And I have too many books. That's the problem. Like. Quite many of us in my age, you know, so what I really recommend people to do is actually pack and unpack or pack again, you know, repack the bookshelves Because I opened up old boxes and found out that I had plenty of interesting books about business, architecture, design, future that has been there in the boxes like five years, six years or so. And now when I started to put them in order into my bookshelves, I noticed that, wow, this book, I didn't realize I had this book and wow, even this one. And it took me journeys still there, you know, unfinished because it took me so much time when I started to browse them. And I started to read the old masters in architecture and in design especially, and I realized How relevant their stories, even after you know, 10, 15 years before, how relevant they are today. Because the essentials in every profession, they are not changing. It's how you implement them, you know, that could change, or what is your interpretation out of those. But the basic elements that, let's say, Ettore Sotsas or Martin Niemeyer or whoever has said they still are relevant today. And that was eye-opening for me because then I titled my text like Lost and Found. You know, we have lost that wisdom that has been there. And I think that we have to refine it, or how you call <laughs> sort of realize that there is so much wisdom, a kind of evolution The journey that we are only a part of that journey. Like Amelia Earhart, that pioneering lady in aviation, she said that I don't care if I'm not going to finish the flight across the Atlantic because there will come other ladies who will finish the journey after me. So this kind of thinking that you are part of the stream, the flow of creative people, you know, of creativity, that there's wisdom in past and wisdom in present and wisdom will come in the future. So it was very relieving because then yet again, I felt that I'm good enough. I do my part. Somebody else will continue from that. I don't have to show any final goal, but I know my lighthouse and somebody else will carry on from that to the next island in the future. That's a
0: perfect drop. I couldn't have said it any better than that. And as I've, like I said at the beginning, when I started really engaging with your work and the things you shared with me and the essays you've written, I walked away with literally a list of five to 10 books and essays and authors and thinkers that I want to engage with. So even in preparation for this conversation, I had quite a lost and found myself and discovery through some of your work that you shared. So this has been an excellent conversation. I've loved every minute of it. And the only thing I always regret when I talk to guests and particularly a guest like you is that I always feel that I've only scratched the surface of, you know, where we could have gone in the confines of this conversation. But I always say it only promises a future conversation. So I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of The Deep Dive.
1: Thank you, Phil. I have a very mutual feeling that discussion has really been a deep dive. And maybe we can do the part two sometime next year under the umbrella of this, if we care, we love. Right.
0: Absolutely. I love that. And we will put that in the books. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having Dr. Anne Stenros join me on the deep dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts or our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter at Far Flung Phil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.